Good morning. It's good to worship uh, together with you this morning. Let's go to the book of Amos. Some of you are just realizing right now there is a book called Amos in the Bible. <laughs> Let's go to the book of Amos. If you do not have a Bible with you, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks there. You could grab one of those Bibles, and if you don't know where to find Amos, as many of us do not, uh, you can find that on the Bibles in the chair racks on page 764. 764 of the, the Bibles that are there. Uh, it's good to be back. I was in Nashville uh, this past uh, weekend, so I was not able to worship with you, and I missed you. I was there for a conference uh, of a fellowship of pastors that, uh, that I meet regularly with virtually, and this time uh, in person. And so we had a good time of fellowship together, uh, but I missed being here with you. I also wanted to let you know we have a special celebrity guest today with us. We have Pastor Chris Partika, uh, our, our celebrity pastor from Ocean Park Baptist Church out at the beaches. Uh, glad to have him and his family with us today. He has preached here on numerous occasions and so make sure you uh, get a chance to say hi to him on your way out to today. It's been uh, good. To, it's good to have him with us. All right, you should be in Amos if you uh, want to be there, uh, and we'll get to Amos in just a few moments. But a little over twenty years ago, a man by the name of Paul Washer preached a sermon that has been viewed millions of times on YouTube. Uh, Paul Washer scares me a little bit. Uh, I don't listen to his sermons very often because he always seems mad at me. But Paul Washer preached this sermon that's been viewed millions of times almost 20 years ago, and he was speaking to a, a conference, an, an evangelism conference for young people, uh, students, and there were at least 5,000 young people attending this conference. And when he stood up to speak to them, he was speaking to them about the importance of personal holiness. That if we are going to be Christians, if we are going to say that we are Christians, that we have the life of Jesus in us, and that is necessarily going to bring about a change in our lives in which we start to act more and more like Jesus. As he was preaching, he made these statements. He said, what you need to know is that salvation is by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. And faith alone in Jesus Christ is preceded and followed by repentance, a turning away from sin, a hatred for the things that God hates, and a love for the things that God loves a growing in holiness and, and a desire not to be like the world and not to be like the great majority of American Christians, but to be like Jesus Christ. When he made those statements, the crowd began to cheer and they began to applaud him. But he looked at them and after the applause died down, he said these words, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. And that changed the temperature in the room 
pretty quickly. (laughs) I think Amos would have been proud. And today we're going to start a series through the book of Amos in the Old Testament. And I'll start by asking you a simple question. Has anyone been a part of a series through the book of Amos? Let me know. Okay, one, two, three, four. Okay, we've got a few people who have actually been through a series through Amos. But the vast majority of you have not. Amos is a book in the Old Testament that is part of the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets are not called the Minor Prophets because they are less important than the Major Prophets. They are called the Minor Prophets because they are shorter than the Major Prophets. The book of Amos is a book that you could probably read straight through in one sitting, nine chapters, and about 15 minutes, 30 minutes max. In fact, my encouragement to you, if you've not already done so, this week to prepare yourself for the rest of the series would be to take 15 to 30 minutes and just read straight through the book in its entirety so that you have that loaded into your mind and your heart. But Amos is the book that we are going to be looking at for the next seven weeks. And from a resume standpoint, Amos was a pretty unlikely guy to speak the words of prophecy that he spoke over the people of God. If you're there in Amos, look look with me at Amos chapter 1 and verse 1. The Bible says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. There, dear friends, is the entirety of the biographical information that we have about Amos. We do not know much about his backstory at all, except that he was an unlikely candidate to deliver these prophecies to these to this divided kingdom because he is a shepherd living in an area called Tekoa. And somehow, through some sort of means, God calls him into the office of speaking prophetically to God's people. He prophesied just about 800 years before the birth of Jesus, and he prophesies to the people of God, after the kingdom has been divided. Remember, after David and then his son Solomon, the kingdom divides. There's a civil war and there is a a divided kingdom between the northern kingdom, which is often referred to as Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is often referred to as Judah. And, and, And Tekoa is in the southern kingdom, but the majority of Amos's speeches are to the northern kingdom, which is something that gets him in trouble as we'll see later. But Amos's prophecies, the things that he had to say, were organized and collected into this book, either by him or somebody who gathered all of those things up so they could be put together. And this book starts with a bang. Look with me at verse 2. So after we get this introduction to Amos, this brief, this, this brief resume of who he is, He says this, verse 2, and he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. 
the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Get that vivid picture in your mind. The very first thing that this book has to to give us is the imagery of the Lord roaring from Zion. This is the land of his people, and specifically Jerusalem, the religious and political center of this place. And and we get this, this picture of the Lord uttering a roar. And the image that comes to my mind is an image from the lion and the witch and the wardrobe. And in the movie version of that, Aslan, remember, has been sacrificed, has sacrificed himself to the white witch, and at the end there's this pitched battle going on between the forces of good and the forces of evil, and it seems like the forces of evil are prevailing. But then Aslan gets up off the stone table, and he runs up to the top of this rocky outcropping, and he releases this roar, and all of a sudden, the, the, the forces of evil are, are filled with fear and the forces of good realize that reinforcements are here. Aslan is alive. He is going to be fighting for us. And I think that's maybe the picture or a similar picture like that that we could have in our mind at the beginning of the book. The verses then that immediately follow signal the Lord's judgment against the enemies of God's people. And I'm not going to take the time to read them all to you, but I'm going to give you the flavor of the first one in Amos chapter 1 and verse 3. Verse 3, this is, this is the Lord speaking through Amos, saying this, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed, Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. For three transgressions or for four. What is, what is that? That is a way of speaking of the completeness of the judgment that God is going to visit on Syria, which is the nation of which Damascus was the capital. For three transgressions or for four, it's, it's almost like saying, it's, if it's three strikes and you're out and you're actually on four strikes. That might be a way of capturing the idea of, of what Amos is saying here. The, complete li- the completeness of the judgment that is going to be visited upon this nation. And then he moves on from Syria to another nation and then another nation and then another nation and another nation. And he does this six times. For three transgressions and for four, and there is a message of, del- of, of judgment being delivered to these nations who were enemies of God's people. And so, if God's people would have been receiving this message in the original time, they would have, they would have been hearing the lion roaring. And that audience of thousands of young people would be clapping and cheering. But then Amos goes on to say this in chapter 2, in verse 4. Thus says the Lord, here's our phrase again, for three transgressions of, wait a minute, Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. 
because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Remember, I told you that that Judah is a way of speaking of the southern kingdom. Amos speaks to the southern kingdom and says, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Judah, the southern kingdom, his hometown, was guilty of transgression and would themselves be recipients of the Lord's judgment. And it extends to the northern kingdom as well because in verses 6 to 16 we see Israel the northern kingdom, also hearing the lion's roar of judgment. Later on in the book, Amos is going to see a vision of a plumb line. A plumb line is probably not something most of us have in our toolboxes. Certainly not something, for those of you who know me, that I have in my toolbox, because I have like three tools in my toolbox that have all been left in the rain and are all rusty. From misuse. But a plumb line is a, is, is a weight on the end of a string that can be attached to something to show whether something is standing straight or not. And God gives Amos this vision of this plumb line that God is using to show his people that they need to straighten up. Why are they receiving this message? Well, we'll see this as we work our way through the book. But the message of the Lord through Amos is delivered to God's people as they are living in a time of economic prosperity, border security, and ease. So it's, it's being spoken to a people who are prosperous, a people who don't have much threats from the outside, a people who can turn their attention because it's not directed at making it or protecting themselves, that it is, it is turned towards a people who can direct their attentions towards making their lives more and more easier. Is that correct grammar? More easier? I don't know. We'll say it is. It's probably not. But does that sound familiar? And because these conditions were like that, rather than causing them to have grateful hearts, hearts that that still are trusting in God for each thing that's given to them, these conditions had actually moved them away from God. They were now worshiping in ways that were unacceptable to God and did not please him. They had not only turned a blind eye to the injustice that was going on in their nations, but they were actually active perpetrators of it. And they were materialistic. They thought again and again and again of how they could have more. So Amos goes on to say this to them. In Amos chapter 3, verses 3 to 8. You can go there with me if you'd like. 
after kind of changing the temperature of the room, as it were, after shaking them up a little bit and and grabbing their attention, he says in verse 3 of chapter 3, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Now this is a, it even shows up this way probably in the text of most of your Bibles. This is, this is a poetic, uh, this is a poetic series of, of oracles. And these questions are, are meant to highlight cause and effect. So when it's asked the question, do two people walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Of course not. Okay? If, you, if you meet up with somebody somewhere for coffee, that's happened because there was an earlier invitation that you do so. Does an animal get caught in a trap unless someone has first laid that trap? And the, the obvious answer to all of these questions that Amos is asking is, of course not. There's a ca- there, is, there, is an, there is a cause for every effect. And so he asked this question several times to get us in the mode of answering, answering, understanding, understanding, and then he hits us with it. Does disaster then come upon the city unless the Lord has done it? He's telling them that when disaster comes upon them, the ultimate cause of that disaster is actually going to be the Lord. Not bad luck. Not the wrong, uh, not getting the wrong cards dealt to you, but the ultimate cause of the disaster is going to be the Lord. Amos is saying, you're going to experience the hand, God's hand of judgment for your refusal to walk in his ways. And Amos has the terrible weight of responsibility of, as the mouthpiece of the Lord God himself. Amos is given the awful responsibility of vocalizing the lion's roar. Now, I believe that Scripture is profitable. And I believe, because the New Testament tells us this, that all Scripture is profitable. Which means that a book like Amos, which is full of judgment, I mean a lot of judgment, it is filled to the brim with judgment. A book like Amos that we might be tempted in our Bible reading plans to get by, 
so that we can get to the Gospels because we're close, it's the home stretch, and we can get to Matthew, and we can get back to Jesus again. It's, it's a book that we might be tempted to skip over. It might be a book that we are tempted to see as irrelevant. It might even be a book that, as we read through, feels a bit distasteful to us because it is so full of judgment. And yet, the New Testament itself tells us that all of the Scriptures are profitable, which means that Amos is in our collection of holy books for our good. God has something in Amos for you. God has something in Amos for me. And I will tell you from the very outset, there are some hard things in here. We'll start with the main idea of what I want to talk about today. Given the fact that the title of the sermon is Disaster, Does Disaster Come Upon a City and the Lord Has Done It? The truth that I want us to think about a little bit this morning is this. Judgment begins at home. Judgment begins at home. I can hear echoes of Amos in the first letter of the Apostle Peter that we have in our New Testament. And I want to tell you why. The Apostle Peter begins his letter with the assurance that God's people are kept safe from eternal judgment by his power. That's an important statement for you to hear. We're going to read the verses that, that teach us that, but I want you to You've got to hold that in your mind because of the other things that we're going to talk about. So I'll say it again. That letter begins with the assurance that God's people are kept safe from eternal judgment by his power. Now you can look at these verses on the screen. You can listen to me read them if you'd like. Or you can follow along in your Bibles. But I'm going to go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to read, first of all, verses 3 to 5 to you. The Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. Friends, be encouraged by these verses. The, this is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God, in his great mercy, has made a way for you and I to be rescued from our sin and this is good news because you and I, on our own, are not able to rescue ourselves from our sin. There are various self-improvement projects that we may take up to better ourselves. But at the end of the day, none of us are fully able to rescue ourselves. Which means that we are desperately in need of something outside of ourselves. And that is the work of God in Christ. 
The Bible tells us that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are, we are a people gathered here in this room who unapologetically raise our hands and believe that Jesus Christ has been literally raised from the dead. And part of the proof of our belief in this resurrection from the dead is that he has also raised several of us from the dead. Several of us in this room, many of us in this room have been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. You have been like Nicodemus as he was speaking to Jesus. You have been born again. That is a present experience of the resurrection power that you can possess right now. And not only have we been born again, not only do we experience God's resurrection power in these moments, but we also have hope for a future because the Bible tells us that there is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Everything in this world can be taken from you. Everything you love can be lost. Not this. There is something that God has planned for you that cannot be taken by anything because it is somewhere where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves cannot break through and steal. Now this sounds great, but it might also scare me because this sounds wonderful, but what about my ongoing mistakes? What about my ongoing failures? What about my ongoing inabilities? Because yes, I have been born again, but there's a lot of this old self still in me. And that's why the rest of this verse is encouraging, because this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What Peter is telling us is that the security of this is not rooted in the strength of your faith, but in the strength of God's power. Okay, it's being kept in heaven for you, and you are being kept by God himself. So let me just stop and pause there and say that if you are with us this morning and you do not have that kind of hope, what we all do here at our church is collectively call upon you, invite you to believe this good news, to receive what Christ has accomplished by faith, to be born again to a living hope of a wonderful future that God has prepared for you. Okay? So, you stay saved by God's power, right? You stay saved by God's power. But then Peter goes on to remind us that God's people have a responsibility to pursue holiness. Okay? This is the this is the plumb line that's being held up, as it were. And Peter says this later in the chapter, in verse 14. <clears throat> he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." Now, in case you didn't get it, because it's not highlighted enough in the verse, God wants you to be holy. 
So that, so that means that when we are born again, when we receive the work of Christ by faith, that we do not kind of sit down on the couch and wait for the inheritance to show up. God, who is holy, calls us to be holy. And let me tell you what that doesn't mean. What we sometimes hear that is, is God is, is holy and perfect, so you better be perfect too. What God is doing, uh, doing is inviting us to experience life with God. To experience the joy of righteousness. To experience the beauty of holiness. To experience that our sins have been forgiven. The grace where mercies are new each morning to, to, to walk in God's ways. God is calling us into the good life when he calls us to be holy as he is holy. And that should be our heart's cry as Christian people, people who have been born again, people who have received what we, what we could refer to as the regenerating work of the Spirit, people who, who have received the resurrection power of Jesus are a people who long for holiness. Then near the end of the letter, Peter channels Amos a little bit. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 15, he's talking about suffering and he's writing to Christians who are experiencing persecution and suffering. Verse 15 of 1 Peter 4, he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Isn't that kind of funny? Just stop for a minute and read. It's like, all right, murderer, thief, evildoer, meddler. Stop getting in other people's business. Right up there with murderer. Stop for a minute when you're reading the Bible. So he's saying, don't suffer for doing those things. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Judgment begins at home. It says it in the New Testament too. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Okay, so here's, here's what Peter's saying. I think. Peter's saying that there are going to be times that we suffer as Christians, and he was writing to people who were actively suffering as Christians. That's one of the main reasons this letter was written, even though we haven't had a chance to dig into that very much. And there are Christians around the world who are, this very moment, this very day, this very hour, suffering for Christ. And Peter's advice to them is not to be ashamed of that suffering. In some respects, it is a privilege to suffer for the name. But he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. 
And what Peter is doing here is also issuing a warning. This may be a shock to you, but we are prone to self-righteousness. Maybe not our church, but other churches. We're prone to self-righteousness. And what Peter is telling us is that we may be too quick to assume that the disaster that has come upon the city is righteous suffering when in fact it is suffering because we are acting like people who don't belong to Jesus. When God's house, his children, behave like they are not in his family, it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. So here's the thing. There's a danger in thinking that we are suffering from Je- for Jesus when, in fact, we are being disciplined by Jesus. Christians, particularly in our cultural context, we can have a little bit of a persecution complex. You go to Target for Christmas, and the cashier says, Happy Holidays. The war on Christmas is on. And I must take to Facebook to tell everyone that this war is being waged, and I will not give in an inch. Because I said to that person back, Merry Christmas. Now, we're laughing, but we're doing that stuff. Or some corporation has something that we don't like, and so we decide that we're going to boycott that thing because we can't shop at that store anymore. As if we could disentangle ourselves from every corporation and wrong decision that they make. And we can be comfortable in our role as the aggrieved ones. Whereas Christians, I think, throughout history would look at us and say, this is foolish. They're not going to put a chapter in Fox's Book of Martyrs about you. Because someone said happy holidays. Maybe we never stop to consider whether Jesus is actually saying, I'm talking to you. Because we too live in a time of prosperity and security. And we too may be cheering on the lion's roar against materialism and injustice, and false worship, not realizing that the roar is directed at us. So one of the questions that I was asking myself as I prepared for this message 
And as I prepared for this series, and frankly, I, I prepared for this series with fear and trembling. Because I know that the Bible has things to say to us that we do not want to hear. One of the questions I was asking as I was preparing myself to preach this was, how can I directly confront God's people, which includes myself, how can I directly confront in a way that changes the temperature of the room so that we don't immediately cheer and yet have you still feel loved by me, your pastor, and by your Heavenly Father? So here's what I'm trying to do. And here's what I want you to think about as we go through this book and as we think about what we've heard today. I think for the most part, uh, our church is a high literacy in the Bible kind of church, which means a lot of us are really in the word and we care about the Bible a lot. And, and that's a wonderful thing. One of the things that I am afraid can happen is, is that it's possible for us to s- assume because I, that because I want the word, that I'm in line with the word. It's possible to assume that because I came to church this morning, hungry to hear the word, there's an underlying assumption in that hunger to hear the word because I'm the kind of person that wants to hear the word. I'm probably the kind of person that's living it pretty well. It's possible that my confirmation bias keeps me from hearing the things Jesus wants to say to me Because my assumption is that I'm already doing them. Does that make sense? So what I would like you to do is to open up your heart a little bit and to ask yourself a question as we go through this. Is God talking to me? And not might I have blind spots, Because we have them. Assume I probably have some blind spots. And God may want me to hear something hard. And hearing something hard might hurt and make me a little angry. And that's okay. I want you to pray and ask God to help you with that. Because what the Bible said in 1 Peter is true. God is holy and he wants a people for himself who are holy. And in saying hard things to us, he is not saying hard things to us through his word for our misery He is saying those things to us for our joy. 
And sometimes it hurts to hear the truth that brings you to wholeness and joy. So I want you to see this from God as an act of love. And in fact, that's exactly what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as son and daughter, God's children? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. We are guarded by faith. We are guarded by God's power for the eternity that he has prepared for us. Jesus said, nobody can snatch him out of my hand. You can't even jump out. Okay, so our eternal security is sure. The Lord does discipline those he loves. When the lion roars, when disaster comes upon the city, when, when judgment begins with the house of God, it is at its core an act of love. It is God's mercy that directs us to be people who act and think and look and live like Jesus. People who love holiness, who long to be like Christ, who are consumed by it. So may, community, that be true of us. Let's pray and ask God's help in that. Lord, you know one of my fears this morning has been to come across harsh. You know my heart has been to convey the seriousness of this, but also convey my love and your love for us. So I pray that you would would somehow do that. We thank you for the ancient words that speak to us. They're centuries old, yet relevant for us today. I pray that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for the holiness of Christ. And I pray that we would do that. We would thirst for it because we truly believe that that is the path that is going to bring us the most joy and the people around us the most good. And you the most glory. I pray that you would help us to go into this series and every series after it, asking you, Lord, what do you have for me to hear? How are you holding up the Bible to me to show me how I can greater pursue holiness? But Lord, let us not do this with fear, but let us do this as a people who are absolutely secure that we are guarded by God. We pray it in his name.